Oh, good morning, guys. Thanks for again worshiping here uh, with us at Journey. Uh, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the things about knowing Christ and, and knowing who God is and knowing the gospel and, and his love and his compassion and his mercy, uh, it exposes who we are as individuals, right? It, it exposes our sins and our failures and our shortcomings. And then when you look at God's word and you read the, through the Bible about some of these people and what, what God did through these people, it, it can become very easy for us to kind of get on ourselves and, and say, boy, I, I really feel inadequate to, to, to follow Christ. I mean, you know, I, I profess a faith and, and, and I want to do what's right and we continually make mistakes and we, we blunder time and time again. I remember uh, we were at a conference and I can't remember what the conference was, but I was in a, a hotel, um, an elevator and you know, we were only going up like two things, and this guy came in, and I had a shirt on that said uh, Bucksmont Church, that's what we used to be before we were Journey, and the guy said, oh, wh- what's that about? I mean, and it was like, you know, this open door to just lay out the gospel, and I was like, ah, oh, blah, 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 and the guy literally looked at me and was like, boy, I just threw you a softball, and you completely blew it on that one, and I'll tell you, I just remember thinking like, Boy, for all the times that I stand here and preach and, and for all the studies I've done and, you know, I, I, I still find myself at times struggling to do what God wants. And I just, you know, you just realize that sometimes, you know, following that Christian faith is not always uh, the easiest thing, right? But, um, but thanks be to God that, again, he is gracious and loving, right, and doesn't say, well, Adam, you messed that one up and, pew, you know, I'm, I'm wiped off the face of the earth. Uh, I think God knows that about us, but I think that's part of the beauty of the way that God works, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But if you haven't been with us, again, we've been going through the book of Judges, uh, and so a couple weeks ago we just kind of laid out this idea in the book of Judges that there's this cycle that the Israelites go through, that basically they, they turn and they rebel from God, and as they rebel from God, they fall into this pattern of idolatry and worshiping other gods, and so God punishes them. For their rebellion, and in that rebellion and punishment, they cry out to God, God save us, and then so God sends a judge, and as long as that judge is around, right, Israel is delivered, and as soon as that judge dies, we will keep seeing through this book of Judges that they fall back into that same pattern again. And so we laid out uh, an introduction a couple weeks ago of just, you know, God is gracious, and God is the hero of all these stories uh, that we go through. And then we saw how God commanded them to basically go into the land uh, and conquer their enemies, and they failed to do so. And we had this half-hearted worship of who God was. And then the next week we talked about that half-hearted worship led them to living in idolatry because they failed to remove the people God told them to, that they started to worship these other people. And last week Adam walked us through the story of Ehud, who basically, for all intents and purposes, was a man that seemed weak, Uh, by the eyes of everyone else, but yet it was the man who God raised up. And so this week, we're going to see another weakness, but instead of the world seeing that weakness, we're going to see a man realizing in himself his weaknesses and his shortcomings, but yet God continues uh, to work through these people. So if you have your Bible, you can open up the Judges chapter 6. We're going to do a little bit of a time jump here, so we're actually going to kind of jump a a chapter or so, uh, and we'll pick that 
Uh, we'll do that next week, and then we'll come back to the story. But Judges chapter 6, this is the, the story about who Gideon is, and we're going to work through this entire chapter uh, today, kind of piece by piece, reading some, and then talking about you know, what it is that we see. So we'll just start in, in verse 1, 1 to verse 6. It says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hand of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts, it was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. And Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So uh, just real quickly, again, right, they've rebelled, right? Their judge Deborah was there. She dies. They rebelled against God. And we see pretty much not so much a political oppression, but this economic oppression uh, that every time they start planting their crops, people just come in and steal it. And they get to the point where they pretty much just kind of abandon their homes and go, let's just set up shop in these mountain cliffs, kind of, you know, like we're, we're on the run from somebody. Uh, you know, we want to just be left alone. And so what do they do? Again, they cry out to God. And verse 7 here now, when the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and I snatched you from the power of Egypt, from the hand of all of your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live but you have not listened to me. So again, God is sending deliverance, but here's the thing that's different this time. God just doesn't send a judge right away. He sends a prophet. Why does God decide now to send a prophet before anything else? Well, first off, we need to understand what a prophet is, right? A prophet oftentimes was somebody that spoke from God to the people, right? A priest would usually hear the cries of the people and speak up to God, but it's kind of working the opposite with a prophet. And a prophet's job mainly was, was a cry of faithfulness, a cry to say to these people, guys, you're, you're going down the wrong path. You've rebelled. You've turned from God. Turn back from your sins and turn back to a holy and a faithful God. And so this is what this prophet is doing. And I think why God is doing this is because we've already seen several times in the book of Judges that every time God sends a judge and that judge dies, what do they do? They go back to rebellion. And I think what God is understanding about these people and trying to communicate to these people is, you know, you're, you're not really getting it. You're not really following who I am. See, you're, you're crying out to me because you're in, you're in dire straits and there's a punishment. I don't, I don't think your heart is really in it that wants to follow after me. And so I think God is sending this prophet here because I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to prepare their hearts. He's trying to till the soil of their hearts because if their hearts are never going to be the right spot, a harvest is never going to be produced out of them and through them. You know, in 2 Corinthians 7, it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. I mean, how many times have you heard or have said to somebody, 
I think you're sorry not because of something that you did. I think you're sorry because you got caught. See, I think we often cry out for repentance because we are in trouble. See, we never would have come to repentance on our own, but it's only the fact that I know that I'm in trouble, right? I've got to face the punishment of the law. I've got to face the consequences of the judge and what I've done. And so now we go, oh, I'm so sorry, because really, what are we doing? We're pleading mercy so we can simply get out of trouble. Right? We're not pleading mercy because we really want to have a heart change. And I think this is what God is, is forcing into them, is that we really need to understand what true repentance is. And I think when we understand true repentance, true repentance is really about a vertical relationship and not a horizontal one. And here's what I mean by that. True repentance says this, that when I am sorry for what I did, it's not because I made a mistake and I, I, I broke a window. It's not because, you know, I wronged somebody. You know, I said something I shouldn't have said to another person, and because you got mad at me, now I'm going to apologize. See, true repentance is when we realize that in our hearts, we know that we have wronged a holy God. We know that I have stood before this God, and I violated what he told me I should do. And for that, I feel awful. And, and, and I want to have a change of heart. And I want to truly say, God, for everything you've done to me, I can't continue to live in this pattern where I, I go against and I rebel against the things that you do. See, that's vertical repentance, and that's where we need to be. Again, horizontal repentance is just, well, I made a mistake, and you're mad at me, and I don't want you to be mad at me, so I'm just going to kind of say I'm sorry so we can move on with our Right? And here's the beauty of true repentance. See, when we find true repentance, that is where we find the gracious and mercy and forgiving God. That's where, that's where the Spirit comes on us and just says, you know what, you're right, you did make a mistake, and God says, I love you anyway, and I care about you anyway. You know, and the beauty of true repentance is that when I fully understand what I have done and how I've wronged a holy God and how he's gracious and forgiving, See, something can happen in my heart. I don't have to live with the guilt anymore. I don't have to live with the bad feelings of like, woe is me, I'm such an awful person, I keep making mistakes. Because we know that's part of who we are, but we know the graciousness of God, and it overwhelms us, and we're able to move beyond that to a place where God wants us to be. And I also continue to hoard these feelings of guilt time and time again. See, that's, that's true repentance. And when we get to that point, that is when we experience the glorious fruit relationship that we can have with God and our Savior. And that's where God wants us to be. And so, again, I think that's why God is doing this for us. Now, if you ever feel that point where you're like, yeah, but Adam, you don't know the things that I've done. You know, I'm really messed up. You know, Adam, you don't know what lies in my heart and my mind. You don't know, you don't know my past. You've talked to me at church, but, but Adam, you've, you've never heard of the things that I did when I was in my, my teens and my 20s and my 30s. You don't know what I did last week because I feel so guilty I, I hold on to them. Well, can I just remind you about how gracious our God is? Romans 5.8, it says, Christ died while you were sinners. See, Christ went to the cross for you even before you said you were sorry. See, see, God doesn't say, well, you know what? You really are this bad. I'm going to not shed my blood for you. He never says that. God doesn't care how much you've done. What God cares about is if you're willing to come back to him. And that's why he went 
to the cross. So you are never, ever, ever too far from the love of God. No matter how bad you think you are, God's love is greater than that. So within, again, God is preparing and tilling the hearts of his people here. So now that I think God's tilled and prepared the hearts, he sends this prophet. Now God is going to bring the judge that's going to redeem them. So let's pick up here now in verse, uh, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came down and sat under the oak of, Eph- of Ephorah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our fathers told us about? When he said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and will strike down all the Midianites together. All right, so let's just, uh, let's just figure this out here. So God has raised up this judge, and he basically says to him, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I mean, you could imagine if God showed up to you and called you a mighty warrior, the feeling that would go in your mind. Well, this is really weird because, again, let's think about what Gideon was doing. First off, Gideon was threshing wheat. So the idea of threshing wheat, right, you basically take like a blanket, you throw it up in the air, the wind takes all of the chaff away, and the the wheat falls back to the ground. Well, Midian, or Gideon is literally hiding in a wine press, right? You know where you would stomp like grapes and make wine? So we have to imagine this is what Gideon's doing because he doesn't want the, uh, the Midianites to see. He's basically got, he's going like this. <gasps> right? That, that's the mighty warrior we got. But see, it gets even better, right? Because then when God shows up, right, uh, what's Gideon's response? God, why did you abandon us? Where are all the wonders? And I'm thinking, Boy, God's probably like, I'm sorry, can you say that again? How many times have you guys abandoned me and I've raised up a judge, but you're going to sit here, Gideon, and accuse me of abandoning? Gideon, I think you got your priorities wrong. I think you got to think through this a little bit more, right? So then God says, listen, go, I'm sending you in my strength. And so Gideon's response is like, yes, but he's like, no, not really. He's like, wait a minute, time out, God, one more thing. Um, you do know that, like, my tribe, my family is, like, the least in Manasseh, you know? And, and not, not only that, but, like, my, and my family, I'm, like, the least in that. So, so basically, if you take our whole tribe, God, I'm, like, at the very bottom. There's nobody that really fits under me. And God's like, yeah, I know that, but you are still my mighty warrior. And so God says, you know, I will be with you, and I will strike down the Midianites. So Gideon here is our mighty warrior. He is our judge to redeem. And basically, what is he? He's a big coward. Uh, He's terrified. He accuses God of God abandoning him. And God says, yes, you are my mighty warrior, right? Oh, how 
how the mysteries of God works, right? Well, uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg because we're going to watch this roller coaster now as we keep going through uh, Judges 6 here of who God is uh, and, and really who is uh, Gideon. So, all right. So now we come to verse 17. So perhaps Gideon has kind of accepted this title like, all right, Perhaps, yes, perhaps I'm a mighty warrior, but I don't think he truly gets it and truly understands it. So let's keep reading now in verse 17. Gideon replied, If I have now found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, And from an epiph of flour, he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place it on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so, and with the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. And when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So what do we have here? Again, Gideon wants to try to really understand this. And so he says, you know, don't go anywhere, just wait. The angel's like, fine, not a problem, I get it. You're struggling with trying to understand all of this. So he brings it back. The angel of the Lord basically shows him, yes, right, I am who I say I am. I am God, and I'm showing you who you are. He touches the meat, and it flares up, right? And Gideon's like, oh, I get it. You are God. Now, this is really interesting because what does it say? It says the angel of the Lord. See, this is oftentimes in the Old Testament what they call a theophany. God would basically visibly expose himself to people. God would come down in some sort of form like Moses at the burning bush, right? Or when Jacob wrestles with God and God touches his hip, okay? God comes down in some sort of fashion that becomes visible to the human being. And so Gideon realizes that he's literally basically talking with God. This wasn't just the name. This was God he's speaking with. And his fear is God is going to kill me. Because back in Exodus, remember when Moses like wants to see God? Well, if you don't know, Moses is leading his people out of the promised land, right? And he wants to see God. And God says, listen, you can't see my face, basically because I'm that holy that you're going to die. But I'll let you see the back of me. And so Moses gets to see the back of God, and he's got this, like, glowing face. Well, Gideon realizes the same thing. He says, there's no way I can see God and not die. And God, again, in his graciousness says, you know, peace be with you. I'm not going to kill you, all right, Gideon? Just, Just relax. So... Gideon realizes he's seen God, he's talked with God. Now we're going to see the response of Gideon. And this is, this is I love this response. Okay, So in, in verse 24, So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah of the Abyssalites. And that same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole. Again, remember, they were the, I spoke about two weeks ago. These were the gods and goddesses they primarily worshipped uh, in this land. And then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, 
offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did it as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than the daytime. And then in the morning when the men of town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it, cut down in the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. See, Gideon says, you know, I've just met God. And I'm going to build this altar because oftentimes throughout the Old Testament, these altars were a commemoration between man and, and, and God, right? When, when God did something special, it was a reminder. See, you know, when they crossed the river coming into the promised land, what did they do when, when God dries up the river uh, of, the, of the Jordan? They built an altar because they always wanted to remember what God had done for them. And Gideon says, I want to remember this moment. God did something amazing in my life, and I always want to be reminded of what he's done and who he is and who I am. And so he builds this altar, and God says, and go and tear down those other altars. And so Gideon does. He goes out to the altars of these Baals and Asherah poles, and he rips them apart, and he tears them down. And that's how it should be in our lives when we experience God. When we experience God, we build altars to him, and we tear down the idols in our lives. That is a proper response of worship when we see God. And Gideon got that. Gideon got that, and his heart is in the right spot. We rid the filth and the trash out of our lives when we experience God. Okay, but... but this is Gideon, right? So it seems like the story could be nicely wrapped up, but it's not. So let's keep reading here of what happens now in 29. So he cuts down the Asher poles, and the men of the town wake up, and they asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told it was Gideon, son of Goash, did it. The men of the town demanded Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he's broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asher pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. And if Baal is really a god, he can defend himself. When someone breaks down his altar, so that day they called Gideon, Jeroboam, Baal, saying, Let Baal contend with him, because he has broken down Baal's altar. Okay, that could easily be glossed over, but, but here's what we realize. Um, Gideon basically had his daddy fight his battle in that one. It was like somebody knocking on the door and saying, you know, we want your son, we want your son. And he's like, Dad, help me. Gideon's a grown man at this point, all right? Let's, let's understand, he's not like a 10-year-old boy, right? So here he is hiding behind his dad. His dad is fighting his battle for him, saying like, you know, if Baal can deal with it, you know, you deal. Well, we want your son. Well, I'm not going to let you have my son because my son's going to, you know, he's going he's to be terrorized if he comes out here. And if we go back to 27 really quick, verse 27, you know, it is great. I'm so glad that Gideon teared down those idols, but we, we noticed that when did he do it? He did it at night because he was afraid of the people. All right, so... Right, Gideon seems up, he seems down, right? This is God's mighty warrior, the least of the least, and he just keeps cowering in fear all the time and doesn't seem to get anything right. Okay, all right, well, we're not, we're not done yet if you think Gideon can't get any worse. Here we go. Now, all the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the Eastern peoples, this is verse 33, joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Here we go. We got it. And he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abyssalites to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulon, and then Naphtali. So they went up there to meet him. All right, so, so here we go. This is what Gideon did well. All of these people are coming. They're coming to attack. Gideon basically summons the people. Come on, guys. We're getting ready for war. I'm raising an army. Who's going to follow me? And people go, Gideon, we will follow you. And now Gideon is ready, and he's got his sword, and he's getting on his trusty steed, and he's going to go charging down the mountain at these people, right? Okay, so now we come to verse 36. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, let me... I'll place a wolf fleece on the threshing floor, and if there is dew on the fleece and all the ground is dry, and then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And that is what has happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Don't be angry with me. Let me, Jake, let me just make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time... Make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night God did so, and only the fleece was dry, and all the ground was covered with dew. So here he is. He's called his army together. He's ready to go out and fight. And then it's kind of like, you can just imagine, like he's standing before this army. He's like, okay, guys, hold on. I'm not really sure if I'm really supposed to be doing this. Let me just go check with God. Hey, God, can you give me one more sign? Because everything else you've done, I don't think I quite get it. And so God, in his graciousness, right, basically does what he does, and you would assume, right, the fleece is wet, the ground is dry, he wrings out a bowl full of water, guys, I got it, I'm ready, and he goes, wait, God, God, let me, one more time, God, I mean, you can imagine, the fact that he's asking that question of God, if I found favor with you, God, if, don't be angry, clearly should indicate that Gideon is doing something he's not supposed to be doing, right, he should probably by this point know enough of what God has done and how, I mean, just in this chapter alone, Gideon has seen God work like two or three times now that he should know, right? But he doesn't, and he's struggling, and he's struggling to understand. But God in his graciousness is willing to follow through and say, fine, Gideon, I will make the fleece wet, and the second time I will make the fleece dry while the ground is wet. And so he does. So let's just recap, right? Here's who Gideon is. Uh, Gideon basically uh, has God show up. He's hiding in a wine press. Uh, he accuses God of basically abandoning them. Uh, he says, God, I'm the least of all the people. Why are you picking me? Uh, he does have this encounter with God where he builds an altar. Kudos for him, right? We can put a, a smiley face on the report card. Uh, but when he smashes the other altars, again, he does so at night. He's afraid. He had his dad fight his battle. But then again, right, second positive check mark. He mobilizes the army. Uh, but then he, he's got this fleece test twice, twice. So, I mean, if we look at that list that's up on the screen, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, because we're counting the fleece twice. Uh, fleece test twice. Uh, out of the nine things Gideon does, two of them he does right, seven of them he gets wrong. All right? So uh, that is your mighty warrior. Right? That is the guy that is going to slaughter the Midianites. 
I'm sure at this point we probably have to be thinking either Gideon doesn't get it or something is wrong with God that he chose the wrong person, right? Now, again, we all know that God doesn't choose the wrong people, so there's probably something wrong here with Gideon and we can't figure it out. I mean, again, you are a mighty warrior, Gideon. Go. I've told you I'm going to be with you. I told you this is going to happen. Why don't you go out and slaughter your enemies? You know, and, and for all this stuff, we also have to know that Gideon knows the history. He knows how God brought his people out of Egypt. He knows uh, how they crossed the Jordan. He knows how uh, they marched around Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. I mean, he's already seen God work in some of these battles, right, with some of these people. And at this point, we know that probably Moses has written the first five books of what we would call the Old Testament. So he has some other scriptures to go off of. It's not like he doesn't have any of God's word at this point. He's got some of God's word that he knows who God is and what God's done. Gideon, how dumb can you be? This makes me think the, like the old uh, Back to the Future movies where he's like, McFly, McFly here, right? Come on, Gideon. But, but I think it's easy for us to think Gideon is such a fool, right? Because why? Because, see, for us, we have all of the scriptures, we have seen what's going to happen, and we know how it's going to end in the book of Revelation. right? We have all of the Old Testament. We saw everything that God did for his people. You know what? We even know how it turns out for Gideon. right? Gideon didn't know how it was going to turn out, but we could read that. We, we know what Christ does on the cross and how he resurrects himself. We know that. We see the apostles go forth and, and, and plant churches and make disciples through the book of Acts. We saw the things that, that Paul goes through and how, how God just opens up you, you know, prison cells and people come out and we see how he, shakes the, how he shakes the ground. We know all of this because we have God's word. And it's easy for us to look at Gideon and go, Gideon, you're such a fool. If you just wait like one more chapter... But he doesn't have that chapter like we do. But, you know, here's something I want us to think about. It's easy for us to harp on Gideon for feeling inadequate. But the reality is I think it might even be worse for us. Because if we know all of Scripture and we know how God's going to work, and how many times have you seen God show up in your life? How many times, just ask yourself, think about a moment where you go, you know what? The only way I can explain that is because God did it. How many times have you seen that in your life? You know, I think the reality is we know far more than Gideon and we yell at him, but we probably may be doubting more than Gideon does. See, we get on Gideon for not having faith, but how many times do we doubt our faith? How many times do we question God and say, God, where are you? And God says, how many times, Adam, do I have to show myself before you get it? But, but let me just go back to Gideon for a second. This is why I think God is willing to deal with Gideon, why he's willing to play along with all of Gideon's requests, especially at the end. God, again, is merciful and he's gracious to us. And I think he knows Gideon's heart because I think what Gideon truly wanted was to understand who God was. And I think that's what that fleece test was. It was a, it was a thing to God to say, God, 
I'm struggling with understanding who you are, and I truly, truly want to know. Because remember what I said, uh, Baal was the primary god, right, of, of the, the enemies. And again, Baal was the god of fertility, which meant children and crops. And I think this was a test for Gideon to truly know who God was, because he said, listen, God, if you can make it rain or produce some dew, and you, don't, you only have it on the fleece and then you only have it on the ground, then I will know that it's truly you as the one true God, and it's not Baal. Because if you can do it, and you can produce rain, and you can produce dew, that's typically what Baal would be doing. But if you can do it, God, I know it's you, and it's not Baal, and I'll get it. And I think God is gracious with that. Now, I'm not saying that this should be our standard, right? I'm not saying, guys, every time you have a problem that you go throwing out a fleece on the ground and seeing if God's going to make it rain, okay? That's not what I'm saying, because we have God's word. If we have a problem of what God wants, we go to his word. And we have God's Holy Spirit that lives within us, that can speak to us. And we pray. And we have a community of believers together that we don't need to, to fall into this trap. But I think for Gideon, it was important back then. Okay? Now, why do I think God was willing to do that? Because here's what I also see in the New Testament. When in Matthew 12 and Matthew 16, the Pharisees, all of these religious leaders, again, who were always at odds with Jesus, who were always butting heads with Jesus, are constantly harassing Jesus. And like, Jesus, you think you're God? Prove it to us. Show us who you are. Give us a sign. You know what Jesus said in both Matthew 12 and Matthew 16? He said, you know what? The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. That's right. For three days, Jonah was in the belly of a whale. And for three days, basically, I'll be in the earth and I'll come back. And people are like, that's your sign? That's not a sign, Jesus. But I think Jesus knows that in their hearts they don't care. You know, when Jesus hung on the cross and, and, and he stood there between two criminals and he was dying for the sins of mankind and for everybody that put him on that cross, including you and me, here's what it says in verse 41 of Matthew 27. As people are jeering at him and sneering at him, it says, in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. Jesus, if you, if you get yourself off the cross, we will follow you. We will, we will follow you, and we will bow down and worship you. Now, I don't think that was sincere by any sort of the but see, I think that's why God puts up with Gideon's lack of faith, because Gideon truly wants to know who God is. That's what it said, right? I, I want to know God. And I think for the Pharisees, I think all they're looking for is for Jesus to basically prove that he's a liar. That's what they're looking for. Gideon says, prove it to me so I can believe and follow. The Pharisees basically say, prove your failure so we can call you a liar and move on with our lives. And so now we come back to us. We have more than Gideon ever knew, but yet we still struggle with our lack of faith. We still fret and we still worry and we still get anxious, don't we? But again, we have God's word and we have God's spirit that we can pray to God that God would be gracious and reveal to us just who he is so we don't lack that unbelief. So just as Gideon was a mighty warrior who lacked faith, 
Guys, let's understand something. We are the very same thing. God has called us to be mighty warriors for his kingdom. And I know that there will be times where we doubt and we struggle with our unbelief. There's nothing special about Gideon. Again, he was the least of least. And guys, there is nothing special about you and me. There is nothing in my life that says I deserve or demand to have God die for me. There's nothing in my life that says, Adam, you should be standing on this stage preaching God's word because you know what? I'm just as much of a sinner as you are. I do things just as wrong as you are. I am not a perfect human being by any sort of the means. I failed just as much. We all do. We all do. Because if we didn't, Christ never would have come, but he has. So what do we do with this? How do we move past the unbelief? We look at what God said to Gideon in verse 16. He said, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And it's the same thing that God said to us in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. He said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, what Gideon had is the same thing we have. We have the power of God that resides within our hearts. We have the spirit of God that resides within our hearts. And so when God says to you, you are a mighty warrior, and we are terrified of that title, why can I believe that to be true? Because it's not in my own power or my own strength that I go forward, but it's in the power and the strength of a holy God who created this world, who has control over this world, who someday will redeem his people and destroy this fallen, broken world. That is the power that I have. And so at the end of this passage, what do we realize? That it is God who is the hero of our lives, and it is God who gives us strength. And if we ever doubt, we go to the greatest place of heroism, which is what Christ did on the cross when he said, Adam, you cannot stand in my presence because of your sin, and I'm going to go through the brutality and the horror of the cross because I love you, and I've shed my blood for you so you can have eternal life, and that you can proclaim that same message that I gave to you for all of eternity. That is why we can be mighty warriors. And that is why we can give glory to our Father in heaven. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, we, uh, we appreciate stories like Gideon. God, it's a good reminder that, uh, one, we are fallen and broken people. God, it is a reminder to us that though I may think I am amazing and wonderful, Father, when I stand before your cross and realize I am the farthest thing from it. But God, in your graciousness, you deal with me. You use me, God. And it's not because, again, anything I do. But Lord, it's because your spirit lives within me that when I call you Abba, Father, God, you, you can move mountains. And God, you in your graciousness use a, a fool like me and a fool like Gideon to accomplish the miracle. And when it's all said and done, God, I can praise you and say, I know that wasn't me because I couldn't have done this on my own. And it's only through your power and through your spirit 
God, that we are mighty warriors for your great kingdom. Thank you for loving and dying on that cross and showing us the greatest act of what a hero truly does.